Before all this started, my life was pretty much easy. There was, you know, getting up, doing the normal things every day, being a mom, taking care of the house, you know, hanging out with the husband. There, there was no having to think my way through a day. None. It was very simplistic. I had the lumpectomy and five days after the lumpectomy I went to go see my surgeon and that's when he told me that I didn't have a papilloma, I actually had ductal carcinoma in situ, which is an early stage of breast cancer. My son was in a really horrible car accident and his femur was broken and in September, about four weeks later, was when the flood came through and pretty much messed up our house. <laughs> we had a little over two and a half feet of standing water in our house. Two weeks later, they were still pumping out 10,000 gallons of water out of our crawl space. Life is just life and God helps me through that. You know, he's, he's kind of He's kind of my superhero, you know, I mean, he, he helps me through that, and I don't know how people do it without him. I really don't. I don't know, I don't know how, how people can face it without having him by their side, you know, and then where, where God helps me emotionally and spiritually, then he sends his people to help me physically and emotionally. It's, it's kind of a, a big, great package, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, the people of God and God are just kind of working together to, to, to just keep me okay. So within the course of a year, breast cancer, a son's accident, a 500-year flood that takes your house and all your belongings. And this happened to someone who loves God. Just this past week, I met with some Christian friends whose teenage son died in a car accident five years ago. Later in the week, I had lunch with a friend whose 43-year-old wife recently died of cancer. Earlier in the week, we received the news that Jonathan Skinner, a young man in our congregation with cystic fibrosis, died after an incredibly courageous battle with this disease. All of these are people who love God. I mean, no wonder many people look at this kind of thing and think, if God really is in control, he must be incompetent. I mean, how, how could a good God allow this kind of thing to happen on his watch? Who, who is this God that we serve and love? Does he really know what he's doing? These are not simply theological questions for casual dinner conversation. I mean, this is where we live, right? We live in a world filled with suffering. And it will inevitably hit all of us if it hasn't already. These are questions that we as believers have to face. So how do we face these questions? Well, we have a couple of options, actually. One option that many believers embrace is what I would call the formulaic option. We, we consciously or subconsciously fit these things into a neat and tidy formula. And here's the gist of the formula. If you follow God, good things will happen to you. If you don't follow God, bad things will happen to you. 
In other words, we assume that because we are believers in Jesus, bad things won't happen to us. We're protected. Many believers subconsciously embrace this philosophy until tragedy hits. And then we realize how shallow and vacuous that philosophy really is. I mean, because when anything bad happens, we end up trying to figure out what sin we committed to deserve this. Well, there's a a second option. It's what I would call the Joseph option. We're in the midst of a teaching series in which we're looking at the story of Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 to, to 50. The story is obviously quite significant given the amount of time given to it in the Bible. 13 to 14 entire chapters of the Bible are devoted to this account. That's a huge chunk. So why is so much time given to this story? I think it's because this story gives us a solid theological foundation that can help us face adversity and tragedy without losing our faith. We need more, we need way more than a neat and tidy formula. We need an understanding of God that is big enough to handle suffering and tragedy. And the Joseph narrative gives us that. What we see in the story of Joseph is this amazing and clarifying picture of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. I think there is a lot of confusion uh, among believers in terms of what, and, and unbelievers, a lot of confusion about what it means when we say that God is sovereign. Some people believe that God's sovereignty means that God causes every event. In other words, he sends cancer and he sends floods. He makes planes crash and he causes evil things to happen. That everything that happens is somehow rooted in his intentional action. But that is not how God's sovereignty is portrayed in the Bible nor is it how it's portrayed in the story of Joseph. What we see in the story of Joseph and elsewhere in Scripture is that God is not the author of evil and tragedy, but he uses these things to bring about his good purposes. God's sovereignty means that he is is orchestrating events and things, even things that were intended for evil, He is able to orchestrate them for good. In a very real sense, here is the summary really of what we learn from Joseph's life. It's a familiar and yet incredibly powerful verse found in the New Testament. Here's a summary of Joseph's life. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God is able to use adversity to help transform us into the people that he wants us to be, which is why we're calling this series Under Construction. Because all of us who love God are under construction. We are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And that process often involves something that we don't like very much. Adversity, difficulty, suffering. 
The story of Joseph can help us see these things in a totally different light, which is what makes it so powerful. So let's jump into this fascinating story. It begins in Genesis 37 with, with what I would call the, a storm brewing. A storm brewing. If you were here last week, um, it's hard to imagine a storm much worse than what happened in chapter 35 with Jacob's family in the city of Shechem. But in a sense, this one is actually worse because it's from within. It's hidden within the family. There are family dynamics brewing here that when unleashed are going to blow this family apart. The source of this brewing storm is sin. Sinful attitudes and patterns of behavior in this family. So look with me at verses 1 through 4 of Genesis 37 where we see this storm brewing. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Okay, there's a lot of dysfunction happening in this family as revealed in these few verses. I mean, let's start with, with Jacob, the father. It's also called Israel here. Jacob, the father. We are, told that, that we are told that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. He actually made this ornate robe, this very expensive robe for Joseph as a demonstration of his love. I mean, imagine the impact of this. One favored son in a family with 11 brothers. It would be like a parent taking their children to Dairy Queen and buying only one of their kids ice cream while all the others watch. And then doing that over and over again. That's exactly what Jacob was doing here, constantly. Now, as parents, we instinctively know how unhealthy that is in a family and how harmful it can be to our children to play favorites. I mean, those wounds go deep. They go deep. What's ironic here is that Jacob, of all people, Jacob should know better, right? Because if you remember, earlier in Genesis, we read about how Jacob's dad, Isaac, loved Jacob's twin brother, Esau, more than he loved Jacob. So Jacob knew firsthand the pain this causes, but he did it anyway. He did it anyway in his own family. Why? It's because he was still, Jacob was still operating from a place of pain and brokenness in his heart. That wound had never healed. He was desperately trying to fill that father wound, fill that void with other things. We did a series on this a couple of years ago called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. That's what Jacob was doing. And we see another manifestation of this here. So he was trying to fill that void with other things. So he looked first to this beautiful woman named Rachel. 
He married her, and you know, as long as he, he had her, he felt loved and complete. Well, she died in, in chapter 35, and so then he set his affection on Joseph. Joseph became his new idol, the, the, answer, the answer to his heart's brokenness. So Jacob is using Joseph to fill a need in his heart that only God can fill. And, and we as parents can do the same thing. We make idols out of our child's success or whatever. We're using our children to fill this void. That's what happened here. And it happened with, with Joseph. Um, and, and, and in doing so, what happened? Jacob is just damaging the whole family. Especially Joseph. Joseph is 17 years old um, and is spoiled rotten. He is. We already know it. First four verses, we know he is spoiled rotten. He proudly wears this ornate robe as a constant reminder to his brothers that he is the favored one. We see in verse 2 that Joseph was tending sheep with his brothers when he brought his dad a, a, a bad report. Now, the word bad here, it literally means false. He is, he's a tattletale. And not only that, he's exaggerating. He's telling, he's He's lying. So he exaggerated the report, making his brothers look worse than they really were. He's, he's really, a, he's kind of a jerk. But there's more. Look with me beginning in verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So Joseph has a dream, has this dream. And the clear implication in the text is that this dream is from God. In the dream, his sheaves of grain stand upright and all his brother's sheaves bow down to it. And the meaning was clear. Everyone understood the meaning of this dream. <laughs> but it was not easily digested. And the reason, one of the reasons is because in that culture, the elder son, the firstborn son, had all the power and authority, period, period. I mean, so, so the idea of, 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 of the younger ruling the older was absolutely unthinkable. It was ridiculous. And this is, again, where we begin to see Joseph's heart. He has this dream, knowing exactly what it means, and then he chooses to tell it to his brothers. It's like rubbing their face in it. And as if that wasn't bad enough, verse 9, then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Okay, so he has another dream, even more vividly describing everyone bowing down to him. And any iota of maturity or wisdom would say, you know, you really ought to just keep that to yourself. You ought to just kind of keep that between you and God. But no, Joseph has to tell his brothers. I mean, let's be honest. At this point in the story, Joseph is a jerk. He is a spoiled, arrogant tattletale. Very unlikable. 
very unwise. And again, Jacob's influence has helped contribute to this dynamic. But Joseph has just bought it. And he's living out this, this life. And then, of course, you have the brothers. Three times <laughs> we are told in this, these verses here we've read, three times we're told that they hated him. This is a very strong Hebrew word here, used for enemies, foes, intense hatred. Verse 11 tells us that their hatred was rooted in jealousy. They were jealous of him. And so we clearly see that this storm brewing here in this family, maybe to the outside, you know, the world that the family looked like they had it all together, but no, there's this storm brewing, this storm of, of, of heart idolatry and of pride and self-centeredness and of hatred and jealousy, which leads to the second scene in this narrative, and that's the storm, what I would call the storm erupts. All this underlying tension and hatred can't be suppressed indefinitely. It, it can't in any family. It's going to erupt somewhere, and that's exactly what we see in this story. Verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams." Okay, so Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers. It's no wonder he's worried because they're, they're, they're grazing the, the herds near Shechem, you know. They don't have a great reputation around that area because of what we saw last week. They committed some horrible acts, and so their reputation kind of precedes them. They're in dangerous territory. Now, that was several years earlier. So now, 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 why wasn't Joseph out with them already? Again, favored status, right? He gets to... Sip lemonade at home or whatever. So he doesn't have to do the work that the other brothers are required to do. So he goes to Shechem and he finds out from a man there that his brothers have moved on to Dothan. And so he heads there. And while he's a ways off, they recognize him. How? How do they recognize him? Sure, he's wearing his robe, right? <laughs> he's wearing the robe. We find out later he's wearing the robe. This long ornamented robe, this obvious in-your-face reminder of how much more their father loved him than them. And it just further fueled their hatred. Here comes this, that dreamer, they say. Let's kill him right now so we don't have to be around him anymore. I mean, imagine the level of hatred required to kill your own brother. Verse 21, when, Re when Reuben heard this, Reuben's the oldest, when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said, don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. 
Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Okay, so when, when Joseph arrives, they strip him of his robe. This is the symbol of favored status. They strip him. The, the Hebrew language used here is, is quite violent. It's the same word used to, to describe skinning an animal. Joseph is most likely naked as they throw him into the cisterns. Cisterns were often, they were like cave areas, some 20 feet tall. They, they had, you know, some height to them. And they were built to collect water runoff when it rained. Thankfully, there was no water in it at the time of Joseph here, or he would have drowned. Later in chapter 42, as the brothers are recalling this particular incident, they mention that Joseph was pleading for his life. We don't see that here, but it was happening. They talk about it later. He was pleading for his life. So, so we have Joseph, naked, thrown into a cistern, begging for his life. And what do the brothers do? They sit down to eat lunch, right? That's what it says. They sit down to have a meal. They're listening to him screaming, and they're sitting down to have a meal. I mean, it's hard to imagine the cold-hearted cruelty of this. But of course, it was driven by intense hatred, intense hatred. That's what hatred does to us as humans. That's what it does. It blinds us, and it causes us to do harmful things without any remorse. Okay, so as they sit down to eat, they see these Ishmaelite traders coming along the road, and and Judah offers an alternative plan. Hey, let's sell Joseph into slavery. That way, we won't be guilty of shedding blood, shedding his blood. So they agreed to this this plan. Reuben was off. You can read more details later. We don't have time here, but Reuben was off, and so he didn't know all this was happening. But they agreed to this plan. So they take Joseph out of the well. And they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, which was the going rate for slaves age 5 to 20. You, mature men would bring about 30 shekels of silver. So the brothers then take the robe, they slaughter a goat, and they dip the robe in this blood. And then they bring that to their father, and they say, hey, we found this. Is this your son's robe? And Jacob, of course, recognizes it and is grief-stricken. He, he, he tears his clothes puts on sackcloth, and he mourns for his son. Verse 35, all his, sons, all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. I mean, the gall of these brothers to go and comfort their father when they know that Joseph is still alive. Wow. 
that this whole story is just filled with awful stuff. Hatred and violence and betrayal and rejection and, and deception. There is devastation everywhere. This is not the senseless tragedy of some accident or some force of nature. This is all the result of sin, of brokenness, of people choosing evil. The entire family is suffering as a result. I mean, think about it. The brothers now carry this boatload of guilt and shame. They know what they've done. They see how it impacts their dad. Tons of shame and guilt. The father now carries this overwhelming weight of parental grief that's fed by the idolatry he had. And then Joseph, all alone, rejected by his brothers, removed from his dad, literally stripped of everything on his way to Egypt. Everyone is suffering. Everyone is suffering. At one level, we could look at this and conclude, yep, that's what evil does. <laughs> this is what happens. This is life. You know, get used to it. But that's not the point of this story, as it is told here in Genesis 37. That's not the point. There is clearly another more foundational theme that, that undergirds this story, that arises in various places in this text. And that theme is this. God is at work. God is still at work. Even in the midst of all this brokenness and pain and evil choices, people choosing to do evil things, God is working. Now, how do we know that? Well, remember what happens earlier in this chapter, these dreams, right? In the midst of all this yucky stuff going on, God gives Joseph these dreams. And as the story unfolds, we're going to see that these dreams are real. They are from God. They are glimpses of a plan that God is orchestrating. A plan that makes no sense to anyone in Genesis 37. They don't understand the dreams. They think they're stupid. They're ridiculous. doesn't make sense to anyone. But eventually will become perfectly clear, these dreams. The truth is, as the dreams articulate, God does have a plan to elevate Joseph. And the plan will involve Joseph being actually being God's instrument to rescue the entire nation of Egypt from famine. And that rescuing includes the rescuing of his own family. I mean, follow me here. Had Joseph not been elevated to the position he would be elevated to, the nation of Israel would have died in the famine. There would be no messianic lineage through Abraham. They would have died. God's plan would be thwarted. But of course that didn't happen. Why? Because God was still orchestrating his plan. These, these dreams serve as a reminder to us that God has a plan. Even if nothing around us looks like he knows what he's doing, he does know what he's doing. Imagine, if, if you didn't know the end of the story, I kind of already told you, sorry about spoiler alert or whatever, but uh, uh, imagine if you didn't know the end of the story, Joseph, right? And you're reading the first few verses of chapter 37. You see a spoiled brat 
telling his hate-filled brothers that he was going to rule over them. And you would say to yourself, there is no way that's happening. Joseph is too big of a jerk. This family is too big of a mess. There is no way, with, with the raw material God has to work with, there is no way that plan is happening. But it does happen. God orchestrates this entire plan. A plan that involves the maturing and transformation of Joseph so that he can actually lead the nation in, in a time of crisis. It's a plan that, as we're going to see, involves the reconciliation of his brothers and him. I mean, it is an incredible plan. But again, in chapter 37, we don't see the ending. All we see are these dreams and these circumstances that seem to be insurmountable for these dreams to ever happen. And isn't that exactly where we find ourselves when we experience tragedy or injustice or adversity? We look around us and we conclude God doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. He is incompetent. There is no way these circumstances could somehow result in good. But the story of Joseph is here in the Bible to tell us that even though we don't see evidence of it, God is still at work. He is accomplishing a plan, a plan that is for our good. In fact, there's, there's this powerful word that occurs near the end of this chapter. We dare not miss it. If you're one who underlines in Bible, this word, I, I think it'd be worth underlining if you're one that does that. After describing this horrendous story of hatred and Joseph being sold as a slave and Jacob's inconsolable grief, we then read this verse, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Don't you love that first word? Meanwhile, all of this awful stuff is happening. Meanwhile, Joseph just happens to be headed to Egypt and just happens to be sold to Potiphar, who just happens to be one of Pharaoh's key officials, a captain of Pharaoh's guard. In one verse, we again see this glimpse of how God is orchestrating his plan. Joseph isn't aware of it. I mean, really, he's not aware of it. No one in this story is aware of it. But we are, as readers. And we can be incredibly encouraged by it. Because here's the deal. No matter what hardships we experience... No matter what evil befalls us, no matter what tragedy comes to our family or our loved ones, there is always a meanwhile. There is always a meanwhile. There is always something God is doing. Something that is hidden to us 
It's not something that we are aware of, but it is something good that he is orchestrating. I mean, I, I guarantee in those times of suffering, our minds and our hearts, and maybe our friends, who knows, our, we read that in Job, our minds and our hearts will be telling us that God has abandoned us, that he is not in control. Everything within us is going to be saying, God has abandoned you. He is not in control. Nothing good can come out of this. I guarantee that's what we will be thinking and hearing and feeling in those moments. And what we need is this meanwhile imprinted upon our soul. Permanently, indelibly imprinted upon our soul. God's meanwhile. Because we need at the bedrock of our lives and our souls, we need an understanding a bedrock of understanding of, of God that, 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 that is a critical, unshakable foundation. We need this as a foundation, this meanwhile. We need, to, we need to know at the core of our being, God is still at work. He is still at work. And it helps to have this rooted in our soul before these things happen. It helps the more rooted we can get in this. Because this is what scripture tells us. God is still at work and he is able and he is going to bring good out of this. Now we may not see that good until we get to heaven and we see the big picture. But we can know in the depth of our being that God loves us and he is still at work in our lives. And in this situation, no matter how tragic it is, we can know he is still at work. At the end of this entire story, in, in Genesis 50, Joseph says something absolutely amazing to his brothers. He, said, he says to them, look at this verse. And this is a picture of God's sovereignty. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That verse, that's God's sovereignty at work because notice, he is not the author of evil. Joseph says, hey, you intend this for evil. You guys are the ones that did this. But God was orchestrating something else. He was using that, your sinful choices, to orchestrate a, a bigger plan. That is God's sovereignty. Biblically speaking, that's God's sovereignty. It's not that he's sending cancer and he's sending this and, he, and he's causing people to do evil. That, that's not the picture of God's sovereignty. He, God is not the author of evil, but he is able to orchestrate things so that even the evil that happens can one day result in good. His plans will not be thwarted. Now, we may look at this and think, I mean, that's all fine and everything, but, but how do we know that Joseph's story really applies to us in this way. How do we know that? Here's how we know. There, there was another one who was rejected by his own, who was betrayed for several pieces of silver, who was stripped naked, beaten, who suffered alone. Jesus went through all of that for us. He experienced the horror and torture of a cross in order that we might experience forgiveness and life 
You see, this is so important. We not only have a God who is sovereign, we also have a God who suffered. He is sovereign and he suffered. God loves you so much that he was willing to suffer and die in our place so that we could experience his forever love. The story of Joseph is certainly powerful on its own, but when we see it through the lens of the cross, it becomes more real to us. When we see it through the lens of a God who suffers for us, it is more real to us. No no matter what tragedy we experience, no matter what hardships we're going through, we can know in the depth of our being that God loves us and that he is orchestrating a plan for good. It is because of Jesus that we can declare. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That is true because of Jesus. It is because of Jesus we can say that. That's not some pie-in-the-sky platitude, oh, that sounds so sweet. I mean, that's the absolute truth, no matter what we are going through. Because of Jesus, we can know that God is working all things for good for those who love him. Because we have a God who is sovereign and who suffers. Now, sometimes we do ignore the, the... the second part of this verse here, Romans 8, 28, we kind of stop there. Yeah, God works for good, but notice what that good means. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, that's his goal, that we would become more like Jesus, And often, the most powerful way for that to happen is through adversity and hardship. We don't like to hear that, but it's true. Just last week, someone shared with me about how his becoming a Christian was precipitated by his father committing adultery and leaving his mom. Devastating circumstances. No one would wish those on anyone, but somehow God actually used that to bring about good. My wife and I can attest to how much richer our relationship with God is and has been because we are parents of a special needs child. My, my friend who's my friends whose son died in a car accident five years ago shared with me how in the aftermath of that, their relationship with God has deepened and their relationship with each other has been strengthened. I think, of, I think of how so many people were inspired by the way Jonathan Skinner lived his life these past few years. Knowing he was dying of cystic fibro, fibrosis, he lived life to the fullest. God used the tragedy of his dying to inspire hundreds of others to live. When we are facing tragedy or adversity, we don't know what God is orchestrating. We don't. He usually doesn't tell us. We don't know what he's orchestrating, and often it doesn't look like he's doing much of anything, but we can root our soul in this truth. He is at work. He is at work. He is bringing about something good. 
We probably won't see it until we're well down the road, but he is doing a good work in us, through us, and in the lives of others. Our job is to trust him. It is to cling to him. It's to lean into his love and trust him. That's our job. And that's our response to his sovereignty. It's to lean into this God who is sovereign and who suffered for us. He loves us that much so we can lean into his love and trust him. Let's pray. I just want to encourage you, just in the quiet of your heart, to respond to what the Holy Spirit is stirring in you. For some of you, maybe the stirring is just a a reopening of your heart to God. Maybe you've been running from him, or maybe you had in mind he just was this ogre, and, and, and suddenly your soul has been awakened to his love for you, demonstrated on the cross. And the Holy Spirit is inviting you, say yes to Jesus. Just open your heart to Jesus. Let him forgive your sin. Let him come live in you and, and love you and mold you into the person he longs for you to be. You can do that right now. Just open your heart to him. Say, yeah, Jesus, I need that. I admit my life's a mess. I need that. I need you. There are others of us who perhaps are in the midst of difficulty right now, adversity, tragedy, suffering. Maybe it's recent. Maybe we're still living in the aftermath of something that happened years before. And we feel like a, maybe a part of our soul just kind of died. And we just said, God doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't really love me. I'll just continue to do this Christian thing. But deep down, I don't know if I can trust him. And I believe the Holy Spirit is awakened, reawakening in you the truth that he does love you and he is at work even if you don't understand what he's doing. In fact, I want to encourage you to open your soul and let the Holy Spirit imprint meanwhile right there. That no matter what you're going through, there's a meanwhile. There's something God is doing. And so I want to pray for that Holy Spirit. I pray in all of our hearts you would imprint on our soul. Meanwhile, that at the bedrock of our understanding of who you are, no matter what circumstances are happening around us, or what mistakes we've made, what mistakes have been made, or how we've been victimized by mistakes, no matter what has happened as a result of evil, bad decisions, natural disasters, no matter what has happened, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would be imprinting at the bedrock of our soul this truth, that you, God, are still at work and that you are orchestrating something for our good. And when we know that, 
We can handle adversity. We can handle tragedy. We can handle suffering, not in our own power, but we can know that you are working and we can trust you in the midst of it. And so I want to pray for that. I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would be stirring trust in our hearts to lean into your love no matter what we're experiencing, to lean into your love and to trust that you are at work and you're orchestrating something good. You are, you are the God of meanwhile. And we're so grateful for that. Holy Spirit, would you come as we respond to your word in a time of worship, would you come and minister to our hearts here? Just pour out love, increasing waves of love upon us in the midst of our suffering and our discouragement, all that we're going through. Pour out your love here. More, Holy Spirit, come. In fact, why don't we stand as the worship team's gonna lead us. If at some point you wanna sit down, that's fine. But let's begin standing. The altar's gonna be open. We have intercessors, one over here, one over here, and one at the back. They would love to pray with you. They have a red lanyard on. They, if you have a need, you'd love for someone to pray for you. Just slip out of your seat. Go to these folks. Father, I wanna pray for these intercessors. I pray you would pour out your, your Holy Spirit upon them and through them as they minister to this body. And Lord, we open our heart to you. We, all of our pain and our suffering and adversity and all the lies we believe maybe about how you're not really in control and you don't know what you're doing and all that. We, we open our heart afresh to you, to a God who is at work in us. In all things, you are doing something good. Somehow you're doing that. And so we just want to, we don't want to try to figure out everything. Oh, this is happening for this reason. We, we, we give you those questions. We just want to focus on you right now and to love you with all of our heart, with all of our being, and to open our heart afresh to your love. So Holy Spirit, pour it out more, more love in this place.